Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. I'm your host, Sucheta Kamath, and we keep these conversations about executive function fresh and uh, to the point, and most importantly, relevant to your everyday application. One of the topics that interests me deeply is communication. As you all know, I'm a speech and language pathologist. I've specialized in uh, impaired communication. But to me, uh, you know, communication, whether it's verbal communication, nonverbal communication, interpersonal, and written communication, I'm very, very interested in. And the second topic that's dear to my heart is a parenting children and how to raise self-reliant children. So what comes to mind is raising children is really hard, not because of the work that goes into changing diapers or preparing meals or taking children to soccer or piano or even the um, whole lot of laundry that you have to do. But parenting is hard because some people are not good with little people. They find it very intimidating to talk to children or to instruct them or raise them or with uh, um, kind of boundaries and, and instructions and support. Uh, sometimes parents tend to get very permissive, uh, very accommodating. Sometimes they get very authoritative. Sometimes they just don't know what how to yield cooperation. So with that in mind, um, I... Um, have been so fortunate uh, to uh, discover the expertise of our guest today. So it's a great privilege and honor to introduce today's guest. Uh, since receiving a clinical psychology PhD from State, of, uh, State, State University of New York at Stony Brook in New York um, in 1975, Dr. Arthur Robin uh, has a sprawling career of 47 years, which has included clinical practice, teaching uh, 37 years as a pediatric psychologist at Children's uh, Hospital in Michigan uh, and Wayne State University School of Medicine Research and Writing, um, specializing in parent-teen relationships, ADHD in adolescent and adults, and eating disorders in adolescents. He has authored and co-authored five books, many chapters and journal articles, and spoken often throughout the United States and elsewhere on this topic. One of the um, topics that interests me deeply is his approach to conflict resolution and building coalitions and teaching parents effective strategies to manage children who may be dysregulated, such as ADHD. Um, So it's a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, Arthur, how are you? Very good, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you very much. Well, the audience is really uh, um, up for a treat because of your expertise in particularly the practical advice you're going to share. But before I begin, uh, begin, I thought I would ask this question, and you as a clinical psychologist with deep knowledge of executive function will be very comfortable answering, mm-hmm. is this podcast is about executive function, which entails this mm-hmm. uh, you know, goal-directed persistence, adaptive flexibility, managing focus and emotions, and above all, uh, really uh, exhibiting this uh, 
problem solving attitude. So you as a child, uh, when you were a teenager, now what kind of child or a teenager were you? And um, what was your self-awareness like and your self-management skills were like at that age? Well, I think as a child and teenager, um, I had pretty good executive functions, but I think what I struggled with would, would have been the self-restraint, trying to control the impulse to uh, not do things like interrupt others or speak when I needed to be quiet or um, wait long enough, be patient. So I needed to, and that that I struggled with as a child, I still struggle with as an adult because there's consistency across the lifespan with executive functions and those we struggle with. So as a child and teenager, I also struggled a little bit with working memory. It took a long time to memorize things. I had to learn a variety of strategies to do that. So self-restraint and working memory would be two executive functions that as an adult child and adolescent, I recall struggling with. And those struggles did stay with me across the lifespan. That's so interesting. You know, oh. as I'm listening to you, um, I also am reminded of my uh, executive function uh, uh, strengths and challenges. I always had phenomenal uh, organization, incredible goal-directed persistence, um, um, you know, putting effort and relentless effort if needed. But I do, I do remember myself being uh, impatient, <laughs> interruptive, and I add uh, Indian culture to the uh, to the mix. And you know, everybody interrupts everybody, so my interruption wouldn't stand out so much. But I think when I came. Uh, to from India to U.S., definitely I looked way interruptive than most people in conversation, particularly, um, and very eager to kind of already think about what people are thinking and kind of you know second guess and move forward. So as we talk about um, our own abilities and skills, let's dive into your clinical expertise as mm -hmm. a researcher and as a practitioner. Uh, can you set the tone for what is ADHD? And um, people sometimes refer to ADD. And mm -hmm. often I find one problematic presentation um, in in medical community that pediatricians, for example, if they diagnose, they talk about the attention piece, but they never talk about executive function. So can you share mm -hmm. a little bit with, uh, uh, with us uh, the definition and its relationship to executive function? Well, to start, the classic definition, which isn't sufficient anymore, would be that ADHD is a disorder of attention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. But that definition, again, doesn't really cover the waterfront or the concept. And so researchers and clinicians have come to a definition which goes something like this, that ADHD is a neurobiological disorder of self-regulation, self-regulation mm. of the mind, of behavior, of emotions, and for some people, of activity level. And if a person is having trouble self-regulating himself, this gets in the way of all aspects of life during childhood, adolescence, and it continues for a good 
70 to 80% of individuals into adulthood. Now, where executive functions fit in is first we need a definition of executive functions. A broad-based definition would be that executive functions are processes of the brain that guide all of our thoughts, feelings, and actions that are central to good self-regulation. So if ADHD represents a disorder of self-regulation, and you used a few minutes ago the word dysregulation, children, adolescents, and adults who have ADHD, their behaviors, thoughts, emotions, and actions are often dysregulated. So if executive functions are processes that guide all of our behaviors, feelings, and actions, then the executive functions are dysregulated or not working efficiently Mm. or in an organized manner in ADHD. Now, a simple way to understand this is the metaphor that Dr. Tom Brown, who you've actually had on your podcast, came up with. The metaphor of the conductor of an orchestra. And the conductor picks the musicians, selects the music, rehearses them, and then during the concert, guides the musicians, tells them, guides them when to start, when to stop, which musicians and sections to play. And if he picked high quality musicians and guided them properly, the music sounds terrific. If not, it may not. So if you think of the brain's executive functions, like the conductors of the orchestra, the brain conducts our day-to-day, moment-to-moment actions. And if the conductor isn't doing a good job or didn't pick quality musicians, then the music doesn't sound uh, harmonious. And so in ADHD, it's as if the conductor, namely the executive functions, are not in synchrony, are not working well. And so the brain's music isn't coming out well. Mm and or the specific uh, components like the musicians aren't highly skilled or aren't playing correctly. So I often describe, use Tom Brown's metaphor in talking about um, that. Um, um, I could talk about specific executive functions if you like, or we could pause. It depends what where, what you want to do next. Well, I would love to put a pin in here, and if I may comment so that you can proceed further, is one thing that I really love that you pointed out for all of us, that that when you use regulation as a framework and not just attention deficit, uh, I think it it is um, um, hyper-focus and under-focus. Both can be t- uh, taken into consideration because this is a common mm-hmm. argument, right? That uh, I, my child loves to play video games and I can't peel him off or, or mm-hmm. my child loves to, uh, when she's doing a particular activity, I can't peel her off. But mm-hmm. then when, I, when it comes down to so- doing something that he or she doesn't like, we can't even get any attention, right? So that one right. aspect, you talked about regulation. But the second piece also I love is this emotional dis- regulation, which is 
um, crying easily or having incredible fit of anger for a small trigger mm -hmm. and then having apathy or generally having meh feeling for something mm -hmm. that you'd be concerned about. So I was wondering if you could maybe just uh, talk a little bit about um, this. I like to call it as a Goldilocks effect, effect, you know, not being just right. So either you're too engaged or you're not engaged enough. You're too reactive and not calm or hyper indifferent. So, um, Maybe you can talk a little bit about why such presentation comes and how does that influence people's interactions with uh, our children's uh, or adolescents or adults' interactions with those who don't have this dysregulation problem? Um, well, I think part of what you're saying, uh, and you could tell me if this is addressing it, is which executive functions are off base or on base. Um, mm. I think the ADHD brain craves high stimulation. And so activities like video games, like texting, like, like certain types of movies and music, they provide immediate and high stimulation. And so the ADHD brain that craves this kind of stimulation attaches to those very quickly and doesn't get satiated on them and can do that for long periods of time. Other activities which don't provide high and immediate stimulation, like chores, like homework, like turning off the video games and coming to the dinner table, uh, mm. like clearing, helping to clear out the basement or the garage, uh, those kinds of things don't provide that stimulation. And so the youngsters, as well as the adults with ADHD, I see this in the patients I work with across the lifespan, don't engage in those kinds of activities. And so the example you gave, which I was thinking of giving anyway, of mom telling Johnny or Sally, turn off the video games and come either do start your homework or come down for dinner. The high stimulation of the video games is compared to the low stimulation of coming down to dinner. The low stimulation activity of coming down to dinner is not going to compete with the high stimulation of the mm. video games, especially for the person with ADHD who craves stimulation. That's also true for people who don't have an ADHD-type brain, but it's even more true for the person with ADHD. So I think what you're calling the Goldilocks effect has to do with different types of brains that crave uh, highly stimulating, immediately gratification, uh, immediately gratifying activities, uh, selecting those activities and being hooked on them and having a hard time breaking away for them. And that also gets to there are genetically based differences in, in how the brains are for hmm. folks with challenges like ADHD, which make them more prone to getting stuck on such activities. So to me, that's Amazing. how I understand and how I explain that to parents. 
Uh, brilliant. I think it, it speaks to my heart. And uh, now if we can take a minute to connect uh, executive function and communication. So one of the biggest challenge which we started, uh, kicked off this episode with is interpersonal relationships. So um, uh, developmental disorders such as ADHD particularly has a significant impact in how you relate to people uh, and that parent-child relationships or yielding cooperation or even uh, expressing uh, warmth and compassion or responding to somebody's uh, requests. Uh, uh, may, there may be a gap. I'll give you a quick story of a, a family that I worked with. Uh, the father um, himself had ADHD. I think mother also had uh, inattentive type ADHD. And they had this firstborn with significant ADHD challenge. And uh, uh, a situation arose that the fa it was a heavy pouring uh, fall day in Atlanta and the dad was driving uh, the son to school. He was already late. So he was half dressed, you know, shirt untucked, you know, one shoe on, socks on, and a bowl of yogurt with granola was in his lap because the father said, we are getting in the car and we are driving mm -hmm. to school and you can eat in the car. And some conflict happened. And of course, the, um, dad pulled over and threw the kid, uh, this 14-year-old out of the car and told him to walk to school because he got so mad. So dad's impulsivity made met with the this teen's inappropriate comment <laughs> and instead of showing gratefulness to dad uh, for driving and apologizing for causing delay so this kind of headbutting is very common at least in my practice or uh, the bane of a lot of families existence so i was wondering if we can start with uh what is the relationship between executive function challenge and its impact on uh, interpersonal communication okay um in any communication between parent and, and teen or any age child, like the interaction that you described, you need, you have a speaker, and let's just stick with a dyad uh, to, for simplicity, like this one you mentioned. You have a speaker and you have a listener. Uh, the speaker needs to send, for, the, for a good communication between a speaker and a listener. In your example, the speaker was a parent, dad, and the listener was a teen. The speaker needs to send a message that is clear and understandable, and the listener needs to be paying attention enough to get that message, needs to be able to decode and understand the message, and then they need to change roles uh, so that then the listener becomes the speaker and sends a message back and it's clear and the new listener now can understand that, okay? Now, uh, for each of those people to carry out their roles, they are, when carrying out their roles, they, they are using executive functions. They cannot, by definition, um, brain processes that guide all of our behavior, by definition, are guiding the behavior of the speaker and the listener. So executive functions, by definition, have to guide speakers and listeners in mm. communication interchanges. So any difficulties that either a parent or a child have, or any strengths that a parent or a child have, because we, we don't want to just focus on difficulties, we want to be strength-based too. Strengths or difficulties 
or degree of strains or degree of difficulties that the parent and child have, including the diode you mentioned, in executive functions will impact uh, what happens when they communicate with each other. That's, for starters, how I hmm. see the relationship is. So um, as a psychologist, when I do communication training, which is one of the cornerstones of behavioral family therapy that I do a lot with parents and teenagers, by definition, I am teaching executive functions every time I teach anything about communication training. So when the dad said, I don't know what his words were, get out of the car and walk, um, uh, and you mentioned impulsive, he, he, he was showing weakness in self-restraint, okay? Yes. Uh, he was showing uh, perhaps weakness in working memory if he had memory about what are different parenting strategies that he could be using. He might have been showing weakness in getting organized, activated as to thinking of a parenting strategy. There were at least three or four executive functions that we may see as in possibly being in deficit at that moment, even if they're not in deficit in the long range. When the, the steps that led to the teen, it was a 14-year-old, the teen getting in the car, which you say, one sock, one shoe, uh, and the, the yogurt and food. granola in a real bowl. Right. All those <laughs> unprepared, late. That, right, all those things. They're late, lost, and unprepared. One of my favorite books for parents. Brilliant okay. book. Yes. Um, uh, all those things that led up to the teenager being that speak to the teenager's weakness in about in in all of the six executive functions that are on Tom's Brown list, Tom, Dr. Tom Brown's list of core executive functions and deficit for, with people for ADHD uh, played into that. And the fact that that teen had those weakness led to reciprocal negative reactions from his dad. So one person's weaknesses in executive function triggered in the communication interchange a reciprocal reactions from the other person. So executive functions are intrinsic to any communication interaction. And since genetics are involved, even if the dad didn't have a clinical diagnosis, maybe this youngster did have a clinical diagnosis yeah. of ADHD or something, the dad may not have. He might still have subclinical weaknesses in similar executive functions. So when one member of the family has a weakness in executive functions, others do too because of genetics. Again, even if the others don't have a clinical diagnosis. So it's impossible to avoid uh, strengths and weaknesses degree of skill in executive functions when anybody is communicating with anybody else. So I see them as completely overlapping. And any intervention designed to change communication or any intervention designed to change executive functions, you change the one, you're changing the other unavoidably, even if you don't plan it that way. So for many of the years of my career in the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s, but certainly the 70s and 80s, I was not familiar with the executive function framework. But I was working with 
communication and problem solving. I didn't realize I was changing executive functions, hmm. but I was because I was changing communication and problem solving between parents and teens. That's a you long know, answer to your question. Well, it's so on point, and I think I relate to it myself because when I started my career, um, you know, 25, 30 years now, uh, executive function was not even a term. We we used a, a right hemisphere dysfunction, but being a communication expert uh, as a speech and language pathologist, understanding, uh, you know, listener stance, understanding conversational repair, understanding how to read between the lines, those are the skills we taught people to have effective relationships. Because even if you run into infractions because of inattention or lack of working memory or inflexibility, if you turn around and come back and say, I'm sorry, my bad, I, I was a little stubborn there or I was rigid there, uh, people are likely to forgive you. But Another thing that coexists with executive dysfunction that impacts communication, I was wondering what are your thoughts about this lack of self-awareness and lack of uh, uh, ability to understand the minds of others? So kind of what do other, what are other people thinking? What are they thinking about my thinking? Am I, how am I presenting to them? So when you fail to think about or take those things into consideration, a lot of these communication uh, problems intensify further. Um, uh, I would love to hear your point of view on that. Uh, well, I agree with you. And I, um, I look at that as to a great extent, certainly to a certain, uh, well, to a great extent that that is a teachable deficit yes. that you can help parents and teenagers remediate that um, and and that may follow from chronic deficits in executive functions um, particularly well first of all if we take children and adolescents adolescents in particular the developmental tasks of adolescents are very self-focused okay so um, it's relatively common that adolescents are not as, as empathetic as people at other stages of life, like adulthood. So um, that is, I find almost all the most a lot of the adolescents I work with have a hard time understanding other people's point of view, <laughs> but developmentally. And don't you forward. know some yeah. people who are stuck in that adolescent stage, even in the late adulthood? <laughs> that's that's true. Okay. And they continue to be self-focused. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. Uh, but, I, yeah. but as they move into young adulthood and adulthood, many folks develop a much better sense of empathy and understanding of other people's point of view. And those who don't can be helped up to a point to learn that by life experiences. Uh, but there are also great individual differences in how much, how well people are able to, to be empathetic and understand other people's differences. So I've looked at that, one, from the point of view of individual differences, two, assessing that clinically, and three, trying to help people increase their sense of empathy and understanding 
of uh, where other people's points of view. Hmm. So um, I think this makes really good sense for us to now move on to the challenges, uh, uh, you know, that are so... Um, they have even been accentuated in the contemporary uh, climate, so to speak. You know, there's a a researcher who, uh, James uh, Garbarino, who talks about social toxins. You know, he talks about that the modern parents have to navigate a lot of complex uh, challenges, including, uh, you know, the uh, parent, the, the notion of parents having control over their children's lives by the information they choose to expose them to is also gone out of our hands now uh, simply by, uh, you know, children having access to the internet, uh, you know, mm-hmm. having um, the more increased socioeconomic uh, uh, inequalities become very evident, which, uh, pa- you know, parents can't protect the kids from in the silo that they may choose to live in. And also this um, uh, very broad visual presentation of, the line uh, between childhood and adolescence and young adulthood is blurry so that what is appropriate, what is not appropriate, that parents may have less sway than their peers and social media might. So I would love to know from your point of view, uh, how do you see uh, these common problems uh, of raising teens uh, in these complex times? It is much more difficult for parents today than 20, 30, 40 years ago to raise children. And I mean, what I see practically from these challenges is that parents have a lot less control over teens today at a lot earlier age, because as you said, of all the factors that you mentioned. So parents, need to form strong bonds of affection and strong relationships and keep them strong at an early age. And also, I teach parents with teenagers, if I'm lucky enough to be working with them when the youngsters are just moving into adolescence, but I do this Mm. at any age in adolescence, a clear difference between negotiable and non-negotiable issues. Because with all the challenges you mentioned, teenagers have, as you well know, a huge sense of entitlement because society teaches that people can pick their own families today, that attitude. And, And there's a sense of... Teens are entitled, ought to be entitled to anything and everything. And so they come to expect the the world and they're entitled to everything and anything. And they, because they see that that's an attitude in society. And so unless their parents have brought them up to have a different kind of attitude or approach, they expect that of their parents. And so parents really need, at the outset of adolescence, to have this clear distinction between what's negotiable and what's not negotiable, so that they they could hold on to 
what's not negotiable and be able to still impose their standards for morality and for appropriate conduct on those things that are non-negotiable. What do I mean by non-negotiable? For one, it should be a relatively short list, and it should be basic rules for living in a civilized family and society. The ones that we might think are obvious, but today are not so obvious. No violence at home, maybe only for self-defense would you use violence. Uh, No really nasty bitter language at at home, uh, or perhaps not in society, no drugs or alcohol. Each uh, family has to decide about things like smoking, hopefully no vaping, uh, although families might need to decide uh, about that. Uh, Do you like... You will do your homework, although I teach families they could have pairs of negotiables and non-negotiables. That you will do your homeworks and non-negotiable. The conditions, when, where, can you listen to music and so on, those are negotiables. When they get old enough, um, having a curfew, but the conditions for curfew, when you could stay out later for, for a special event and so on. But having no more than seven or eight Uh, at most 10 non-negotiables. But again, if these aren't established by age 12 or 13, these days parents won't be able to establish them. And then I teach them to use whatever they can as consequences, both positive and negative, for breaching these. It's hard to do this if parents haven't been consistent when the children are younger. If hmm. I'm working with the children who are um, younger I'm and their parents and they've had difficulties, I'm teaching them to use discipline with love and behavior management to hmm. manage that. Um, now, this side of what I've done in my career connects with co-authoring with Dr. Russell Barkley um, several books on defiant teens, which is one of the things uh, that I've done. But basically, helping parents make a distinction between negotiables and non-negotiables, this doesn't completely answer your question about the challenges that parents have. They have lots and lots of challenges. But this is part of, as a therapist, how I and some other psychologists have tried to set parents up at the outset of adolescence, because adolescence is the time that these challenges of modern society pose the greatest risk for families. Of, you know, of I'll give you to for success. Um, and anyway, I'll just stop and let pause in here. No, I think it's such a great point you're saying. I just love the simple framework of negotiable and non-negotiables. I um, often tell my parents, uh, the parents that I work with, uh, you know, uh, like my last name is Kamath, so these are Kamath rules. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I don't have to explain to you how and why I came up with this, but this is the Kamath rule and that's what we follow. This is the family ethos. This is who we are. This is what we do, Um, including one of my my biggest (laughs) pet peeves is when we travel, um, I uh, always have asked my children to dress well. Uh, It's just something I grew up with. It's it's just you... uh, 
elevate the environment of travel, you get better treatment, and you also have put that effort prior to leaving for a long trip because uh, anyway, it just takes more effort to be well-prepared or looking well-prepared. Um, I'll give you an example, and I would be very curious to see what your thought would be. So, of course, you know, uh, families begin to seek help when things get a little bit out of hand. Mm -hmm. um, and by then, I think a lot of um, uh, rules become too annoying to the teen or, uh, because they, they have not been raised with those teens. One family I worked with once, um, the mother came and said, I don't know what to do, Sucheta. Uh, my son shows up completely naked. Uh, to the kitchen early in the morning. <laughs> and and so for that to happen at age 16, what was happening for the last 16 years is the biggest right. question, right? right? And so somewhere, I mean, uh, how to behave in public spaces, so not even having the distinction between public versus private space, was that non-negotiable thing. Um, so somewhere even at 14, something like that must have happened. So I'm just curious that... Uh, people don't take take small infractions seriously until they become big infractions. One of the stories in your book, you write about uh, this uh, uh, a child where the parents have disagreement about how to approach, but the child has uh, is you know jumping out of the window at night mm -hmm. and hanging out with friends, bringing mm -hmm. girls to his room during lunch hour, and then even gets uh, gets in trouble um, with police mm -hmm. because he gets pulled over. But the parents wake up to start thinking about what to do now after he gets pulled over by the cop. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, what kind of threshold you recommend parents to have where uh, you, you know, um, kind of say, oh my goodness, I need to get a rein on this situation rather than, you know, going too far and then compelled because now there's some legal ramifications and things like that. So what parents should do if they're in that situation at age 16 and the youngster's coming in the kitchen nude yeah, and, no, and, I'm just and saying, they're already there. Well, I'm saying people begin to reconsider their any strategic approach where there's no strategy mm -hmm. only when things become really, really difficult. Right. And by then, to me, it's so late because the kid, kids are gotten used to you not having any rules. And, yeah. and so I'm just saying how, so there's one is crisis management, which is like reining things back yeah. in. But how do you reestablish your authority over children who kind of start challenging you because you have never set, the, um, set any boundaries uh, earlier on? Um, you have to start with, you can't reestablish it all at once. Yes. So you have to start with one thing at a time. In a situation like that, I would be having be having the mom start probably actually modesty and clothing. Probably I don't know that family situation, but it might be easier to deal with modesty and clothing than all the other things that teen might be doing. If that's what the mom is noticing, my guess is there's a whole bunch of more intense things that that teen is also doing, which would be much harder for the mom to reestablish uh, authority over. Um, so uh, you have to start. I would have, have the family. Well, in case like that, I would be working a little bit with the mom and the teen separately before I work with the family together. 
the more dire the situation, the more likely I am as a therapist to work with parents and teens separately and concurrently before I put them together because I don't want explosions until I know what I'm dealing with. And I come up with a hierarchy from least to most provocative uh, of the challenges that, that the teenager is giving to the family in terms of least to most provocative. And then I help, uh, I come up with uh, trying to reestablish parental authority on the least provocative ones first, going up the hierarchy to the more provocative ones. And I'd come up with some of positives, see if I could come up with any positives incentives mm. that could be added as well as things that need to be taken away. But I'd first have to come to understand how that came to be. And what I asked myself, this is when another component of behavioral family therapy comes into play, which we haven't mentioned, which is the strategic structural family therapy component. I need to understand what is the function of the problem behavior in the family system? Mm. So there's skills, communication skills, and problem-solving skills. There's belief systems, extreme beliefs, and there's structure and function. When a 16-year-old shows up nude in the kitchen, I have to know or figure out what's the function of that behavior in the system because uh, mm. it's a provocative behavior. And... I can't simply ask what is the function of that behavior in the system. I figure out functions and family structure for meeting with family members together and, and apart over several meetings. Sometimes it takes more than several. If the function is to call attention to sexuality, that could be one function, is the function to make some statement about some provocative statement once I know what the function is in the system, mm. I then have to decide, am I going to change that function in the system or am I going to find a less provocative way, less maladaptive way for that family to carry out that function? Okay. Um, Makes perfect sense. And so examples of functions that might be going on and I have no idea what they were in the system. Oftentimes, functions that with teenagers are the teenagers want more distance from their parents. And the parents are trying to keep more closeness to the teenagers, but the teenagers rebel or do outlandish mm. things to put more distance between themselves and, and their, their parents. So there's an antagonistic function. Teenagers want to individuate, parents don't want to let them do that. And if I find that out to be the function, I try to find a less, a more adaptive, less problematic way for them to accomplish that function. Give autonomy. Right. A second thing is in a in a three parent, in a two parent family with one or more youngsters, often fixing a bad marriage, a teenager stuck in the middle and trying to keep the parents' bad marriage or bad relationship together is another common function I encounter. 
if I figure that out over time, then I need to figure out how to get the teenager out of the middle of the parent's marriage and get the parents their own help. And, and that might be a number of different strategic moves that I would need to take as, as a family therapist. And they'll be different for each family. It won't simply be doing communication training. So that's a second possible function. There are other functions too. Sometimes the function is to see the teenager trying to call attention to this family stinks. We have problems and we as a family need help. And that's the teenagers trying to make a statement by an outlandish behavior. And if that's the function, I need to help them publicly acknowledge to each other that the family has problems that go beyond the relationship between the teenager and the parents. So if stifling communication about this family has big problems is the function, I need to help them openly admit that to each other. So that's a long way of answering your question, which is I would have to get more information before I would assume it's simply a reflection of cultural norms, which it could be, but mm. I wouldn't jump to that conclusion until I understand whether or not there's a specific meaning or function for this family. No, I really like that because I think um, it's almost like uh, the the psychologist lays their vision to see behind the flesh. You know, mm -hmm. what's the the what is the backbone of these collective behaviors and what what uh, role they play in yielding either you know asserting mm -hmm. an autonomy or rebelling so that you're pushing away the mm -hmm. some forced way of control that others are exerting. This makes really good sense to me. I was just wondering. Uh, um, one of the things that came to mind as you were speaking about this is uh, what if the parents themselves have ADHD and they themselves are inconsistent? Um, and, and I see that very often. So part of the navigation that the child is trying to do is to deal with um, either the unpredictability that comes with um, inconsistency mm -hmm. or uh, la lack of, uh, um, you know, a sense of trust or a relaxation that comes from knowing uh, things will be predictable, routine, and and reliable. So when you don't have in the house, that can create mm -hmm. a little bit chaos. So I would love for you to uh, share your thoughts about that. Okay. Well, in in that case, as soon as I realize I may be dealing with a dual ADHD family, at least one adult and at least one child has ADHD, if the parents who has the ADHD is already diagnosed, then I move to step two of what I'm about to say. If I suspect it, but they're not yet diagnosed, I'll bring to their attention the possibility and see if they're open to getting diagnosed so we can have it on the table and deal with it. If they are, I would see if they will go through a diagnostic process, either with me or with someone else. Because once they are diagnosed, then if they're willing to be treated for their ADHD, the whole situation could improve faster, okay? Mm. Um, so basically have all the folks in the family who might have ADHD be diagnosed and be treated for ADHD is, is, the, is step one. 
if possible. Okay. Hmm. Let's assume that happens. Okay. If it happens to turn out that one of the interventions that is being used is medication, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, then there's the possibility of the physicians prescribing medication for the parent and for the child can dose the medication optimally. So that will, part of the dosing of the medication will help improve family interaction between parents and child. An ideal situation is if it's the same physician, like a family doc who knows a little bit about ADHD or a lot about ADHD. So the family doc and I, with permission, stay in touch with each other. So Hmm. the family doc is dosing medication to the family interaction. Okay, so medication is optimized. And I'll just go on to other things in a moment. But this, this, if you have this opportunity, it is a great opportunity when medication is appropriate and accepted by the parents in a dual ADHD diagnosis thing to dose medication to the behaviors that need to change. One, consistency for parents in carrying out interventions and parenting, and Mm. two, improving the behaviors the parents are trying to help the youngsters improve. So leaving the medication for a moment. Um, I um, add to my intervention a component that's a cognitive behavioral type component for the parents on helping them learn uh, to organization strategies to be consistent in carrying out the interventions that I'm teaching them for family improved family functioning. If this is a preteen, I am probably teaching them behavior management interventions. Hmm. If this is a teenager, I am probably teaching them communication skills and problem solving and things like that. And so then as I teach each skill, I do it more slowly. I do it in short, clear sentences. I may I have make sure that the non-ADHD spouse, if I have a two-parent couple, is not getting an undue burden such that the non-ADHD spouse would get burned out from the parenting. Hmm. I make sure that I'm sensitive, that it's evenly divided. I also make sure that with the couple that they, that they have the parenting tasks divided so it's playing to their strengths so that the ADHD spouse is not doing all the stuff that requires a huge amount of paperwork, for example. Yeah. And like if there's schlepping of kids to sports and so on, taking them all over the place, that's often I try to see if we get the ADHD spouse to be doing all of that. If there's checking over the details of homework to make sure it was done right, I try to work it out so that maybe the non-ADHD spouse is checking over all the details because the ADHD spouse is usually terrible at that. But the ADHD spouse still could be involved in supervising some things with homework so all the homework doesn't get dumped on the non-ADHD spouse. Hmm. But I try to get the parenting tasks to play to their strengths. But the ADHD spouse can be the one putting uh, the youngster to bed if it's the only youngster and they have to do bedtime routines. Uh, but the, the non-ADHD spouse might be much better at some fa- functions of homework. So try to optimize uh, playing to the, 
their strengths, what they're going to do, uh, and and I'll go from here. Does this make sense? Oh, well, phenomenal. Yes, thank you for like showing the three different paths here. Um, and you know, as we come to the end of this discussion, one thing that is so uh, amazing about your insights is uh, one. I think diagnosis so is so important, and uh, and without that, um, and, and second, which is also part of the diagnosis, you need an expert. So sometimes I think instead of just relying on good faith effort, it might be great as a family to consult experts. Second mm-hmm. thing is I love the that this distinction between when to bring in medication versus medication plus, because a lot mm-hmm. of families I know are are their first line of defense. And the only line of defense is medicine, but the medicine doesn't solve a lot of interpersonal habit formation that has happened. Mm. But the last thing that you really touched upon, which is this, um, there are certain distortions that we all carry, and those cognitive distortions require specific cognitive behavior approaches. Uh, and again, experts uh, like a clinical psychologists such as yours is really very, uh, plays a very important role. So as we wrap this conversation up, uh, I would love to know uh, if you have any recommendations recommendations for our audience regarding books that uh, you have um, found influential. Uh, And we will be right. um, I have found your own book, which is ADHD in adolescence. one of the most influential books for me as a clinician, Uh, but wondering um, if you have uh, two books to share before we wrap up. Well, one I would recommend is by a school psychologist, Chris Dendy. And Teenagers with ADD, ADHD, and Executive Function Deficits, a Guide for Parents and Professionals. Uh, Chris Dendy is really an expert on teenagers with ADD and how to teach them to improve their executive functions. And she has lots and lots of good advice. And she successfully raised several youngsters who are now grown-up adults who work with her on her own work and presentations. So that would be one for sure um, that I would recommend. And the ADD and Adolescent book that you held up is a great book and is designed primarily for professionals. One that I collaborated on, which is designed for parents, specifically is Your Defiant Child. So I would recommend that one uh, specifically for parents. Dr. Russ Barkley is the first author uh, of that, and I'm the second. Uh, That one will help parents with a lot of the strategies, Mm. even if their child isn't defiant, for a lot of parenting strategies, like the distinctions between negotiables and and non-negotiables. I also want to add, just so parents would understand this, a lot of the examples that we talked about it's not as simple as to do. Uh, the things that I said that I do this or I do that, they're really not as simple as they might have sounded when we talked about them. It takes an awful lot of hard work. And when you look at the books, either Your Defiant Child or Chris Dendy's book, there are lots and lots of illustrations about that uh, let you get the feel for how hard it is to make these changes. So I have a great deal of empathy for parents who are in uh, those places because I'm a parent of two youngsters who had <laughs> different types of ADHD as they oh, grew see. up. So I know it's not as simple as we might have made it sound. 
Definitely. Well, thank you for your expertise. Um, uh, and uh, listeners, that's all the time we have today. Thank you again to Dr. Arthur uh, Robin for being a guest. Uh, and as you see, these are very important conversations uh, that we must continue to have to deepen our understanding of um, not just the nature of executive function, but the scope and manageability. One of the messages I hope it struck uh, a chord with you all that these are malleable skills. That means they change with time and expert feedback and coaching. So definitely do not be afraid of executive function challenges. And lastly, um, you know, if you love what you're listening, definitely keep spreading the word. Uh, like us on our social media. Join us in the movement. Uh, subscribe to our, um, um, uh, you know, our um, social media handles. And uh, uh, we look forward to seeing you again right here next time on Full Prefrontal. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.